0: As you grab your seats, i got a question for you. As you grab your seats, I've got a question for you. And the question is this. Have you ever noticed, as you've read through the scriptures or read through especially the New Testament, that Jesus has a tendency to love to confuse people? You ever notice this? He loves to say things that throw people completely off their guard. How many times would he tell a parable, for instance, one of those stories, and the people would be listening, and you think they get it. They're all, like, nodding and affirming. And then whenever, when the crowds leave, the disciples come back to him and go, Jesus, great story. Really, really good. Uh, love that whole thing about the seeds and the farmer thing. Real, real good. But What? yeah <laughs> what <laughs> like what are, what are you talking about or my favorite all time favorite story with Nicodemus remember this one Nicodemus like brilliant biblical scholar comes to Jesus in the end, or at night and they sit and have, they have a good theological debate and at one point in the middle of the night Jesus turns to Nicodemus and says if you want to see the kingdom of God you must be born again and Nicodemus <laughs> Is so confused by this. He goes, what do you mean I got to be born again? I got to crawl back inside my mom? Is that, is that what's going on? Jesus loved to say things that trip people up. He loved to use loaded language, terms that had a very rich meaning that caused people to stop and slow down and think about what he was saying because what he was saying was incredibly profound. And if he would have just said it simply, nobody would have got it. Well, the reason I bring this up is because in our passage today, I think John is taking a playbook from the master. I think John is doing what Jesus did. He's using some terminology, some very loaded language that when you read it, you're going to find yourself very confused. You're going to find yourself confused and you're going to be like, what is he talking about? John is using terms that his congregation, his original audience, the original readers probably understood, but even for them, this would have been loaded language that would have forced them to slow down and think about what he is saying. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to need to take what John is saying very slowly. We're going to need to break apart what does he mean by blood? What does he mean by water? What does he mean by spirit? And when we do that, when we go slowly through it, I think you're going to begin to glimpse that what John is saying is not only profound, but has great significance for us today. Sound good? All right, so we're gonna be in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, we're going to be reading verses 6 through 12. It's page 857 in your pew Bibles. I will be flipping a lot in John's letter this morning. And so you're probably going to want to keep it open only because I will be referencing numerous parts of his letter as we're getting towards the end and he's concluding his argument. So 1 John 5, 6 through 12, you're also going to want to read this section with me. All right, because listening to it, it's even more confusing than reading it. All right, so here we go. First John 5, verses 6 through 12, he says this, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement." <clears throat> We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is far greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given us about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is that testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the word of the Lord. So were you confused? Tell you, first time I read this thing, I, I approached the passage with, you know, intrigue. And then by the time I got to verse 10, I was in absolute bewilderment. And confusion. My face was like completely contorted. And then I had certain people read it this week. And I was like, do you have the same experience? And it was actually really fun to watch them go from intrigue to absolute confusion. Um, This is a hard passage. This one's very difficult. And you see, he uses this loaded language, water, blood, spirit. And he says somehow these things testify about who God is or specifically who Jesus is. They're talking about his nature. And then the second part kind of makes more sense. Something about who Jesus is relates to eternal life. And so what we need to do this morning, as I said at the front, is we need to slow down and we need to break apart what does he mean by these loaded terms, They are full of meaning. Clearly, they don't simply mean blood and they don't simply mean water. They stand for something. Well, what do they stand for? So we're going to break that apart. After we do that, I think you'll have a clear understanding, a clear idea of what John is saying about how they testify to the nature of God, okay? From there, the second part, we're going to break down what is eternal life. What does it mean to live eternally? So that's where we're going to go this morning. So again, let's just get on the same page. First thing, something about water, blood, and spirit tells us about the nature of God. So let's break apart. What does he mean by water and blood? Well, the truth is there's actually been a lot of debate on these terms, Um, throughout the history of the church, you can go back and everybody from Luther and Calvin to Augustine to early church fathers, they all debated what this meant and they went back and forth on it. There seems to be general consensus. And in my opinion, the best interpretation actually comes from a second century church father, a guy named Tertullian. Um, And the reason I think Tertullian is spot on is because he is ministering to the same group of people John is ministering to. Or at least dealing with the same issues that John's group of people is dealing with. And so I think Tertullian is most spot on in his interpretation. And what Tertullian argues is this. That the, two, uh, that the water and the blood, they deal with two distinct events in Jesus' life. Two distinct events. The water stands for his baptism. All right, His baptism, that moment when, when God declared, you are my son. And second, Jesus was commissioned by the Holy Spirit to go out and begin his ministry. In other words, the water stands for the beginning of his work on earth. Okay, The blood then is pretty obvious. It stands for his death, the end of his life on earth. okay. So you're just going to need to hold on to that. If that's what the water and the blood signify, the way we need to understand it is, again, by stepping back and looking at the big picture. If you remember, when we started looking at 1 John, I told you John has two reasons for writing this letter. Two reasons. The first is quite obvious. He wanted to lay out a Christian theology. He wanted to lay out, this is how I understand Christianity, this is what it's like to follow Jesus, and he he relies on the fact that he followed Jesus for three years. I heard him, I saw him, I touched him, I know what he taught. And so he lays out that theology. But the second reason John is writing, and probably more significant than the first, is because John is writing to warn the church about false teachers, There are people that have crept into John's communities and they're starting to teach lies about who Jesus is. And for John, that is a very big deal. We actually have a good understanding of what their lies are. If you go back and read 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, you glean it very clearly what their issues were. And the biggest one they had was this. They argued that Jesus had a divided nature. Okay, buckle up. Ready? It's going to get a little deep, okay? But you could handle this, I promise. What they argued is this they argued that Jesus was not 100% God and 100% man. They argued that he was 50% God, 50% man. And you're like, I'm already lost. Let me explain again. What they argued is that Jesus, they, they bifurcated, they saw two different sides to Jesus. They saw Jesus, the man, as they referred to him as, you know, normal flesh and blood, totally human guy, and they referred to the Christ or the divine nature of God. And what they argued is this. They argued that at the baptism of Jesus, Jesus the man stood there and was then filled with the Christ He was imbued with the Christ's power. It was at that moment God filled him. And the problem comes then is they believe then that the Christ somehow left Jesus when he was on the cross, and therefore only a man died. Better yet, let's see if this works. They taught what I'm going to call vinaigrette theology. All right, I got some oil and I got some vinegar. What they argued is this. Okay, you've all been to... Italian restaurants, right? So you've seen this. Okay, what they argued is that Jesus was really just the man. Oily, humany Jesus, okay? Probably had a lot of acne, all right? <laughs> Teenagers are now like, I now relate to him better than ever. Um, this was Jesus, Jesus the man, okay? And what they argue is that at his baptism, the vinegar was poured in. The vinegar being the divine essence of who God is. And so here's the thing, no matter how hard you shake, right? No matter how hard you shake, these two are always distinguishably different. You will always have the oil, and you will always have the vinegar. You will always have the human side, and you will always have the divine side. And so what they argued is that at the death of Jesus, all of the divine elements were pulled out, and all that was left was the, de- was the man, and the man is the only thing that died. Does this make sense? Do you get why this is a problem yet? Because here's the thing. This totally, for John, eroded the most fundamental elements of Christian theology. If Jesus was just a man, if God did not die, then his death was utterly meaningless. If Jesus was just a normal guy, if Jesus was just like you and me, then he could have never paid the penalty for our sins because he would have had to first pay his own, sin, his own penalty for his own sins. In other words, let me make this even more clear for you. If Jesus was just a man, if God did not die, then you and I have no hope of salvation, No hope whatsoever. And so John sees this as a huge problem. Sees these people coming in and saying, God did not die. This is a big deal. And so he uses, to the very best of his ability, the best of his lingo, he loads terms and he tries to communicate that Jesus was not God and man, but that Jesus was the God-man. Okay? He combats this vinaigrette theology by emphasizing that Jesus was 100% human and 100% divine. And if you're having a hard time tracking with my own lingo, you need to understand what John is doing took the church at least 400 years to develop the terminology to express. This idea that Jesus is not God and man, but that he's the God-man that they're not distinguishably different, that they are not separable at all. Jesus' flesh and Jesus' divinity are so intimately connected that you can never separate the two. And John pushes this. John pushes this, and you see this in his writing. Look at verse 6. This is where it's coming together. Jesus is the one who came by water and blood. That word by is actually the Greek preposition dia. Dia means through, by means of, by the way of. Okay? In other words, what he is saying here is this Jesus Christ was the one who came through baptism and Jesus Christ was the one who went through death. He was never distinguishably separate. Before his baptism, he was Jesus the Christ. During his baptism, he was Jesus the Christ. After his baptism, Jesus the Christ. Before his death, Jesus the Christ. During, after, Jesus the Christ. He was never distinguishably separate. He was always 100% the God-man. The God-man. And that is John's point. And then he tacks on something else. He says the spirit also testifies to this truth. The spirit also testifies to the fact that Jesus was not a divisible, divisible unit. And look at 1 John chapter four, verse two. He already spoke about this. 1 John chapter four, two says this. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that doesn't is not from God. John is fighting against a heresy in his church that is trying to tear Jesus apart, and he's fighting to make sure people know no, Jesus and Jesus alone is the God man, and God Himself died for you. So here's John's profound point in a nutshell God truly died so that you and I might truly live. That's his point today, and we see this when we look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. Look at what he says here. And this is the testimony, the water, the blood, the spirit. They all point to this truth, that Jesus was the inseparable God-man, and that Jesus and Jesus alone died for us, and because Jesus died for us, God has given us eternal life, and this life is found only in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Do you see what John is doing? He's doing, to the very best of his ability, loaded language to tell us that because Jesus is the God-man and because the God-man died, you and I have life you and I have life. And so he talks about eternal life. And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time. What does he mean by eternal life? It's a good question. Often when we talk about eternal life, don't we think about it in like a quantitative sense? Quantitative meaning it has to do with a large number. It continues to grow, dropping my papers, What I mean by that is a life that never ends, a life that goes on and on and on. That's usually how we talk about eternal life. Eternal life is something that comes to us from the moment we die. We die and then enter into eternal life. And hear me on this because this is very clear that is true. That is absolutely true. When we talk about eternal life, we are talking about a future reality. We are talking about the fact that when we die, we will spend eternity with God. We will spend endless ages in the presence of God himself, and that is a good thing. That is the hope, frankly, we will cling to at every funeral from here on out, at every death. But it's also the hope we point to when life goes to hell because we can know this. We know that this life is not the end. We know there is more to life than this. We know there is more to come. And so we cling to that idea of eternal life in the quantitative sense that there is so much more, that our life, as James says, is nothing more than a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow in a second, but that in the grand scheme of things, it goes on forever. We get that. But here's the thing, and this is what I wanna talk about today, John has such a richer understanding of life than something that just comes when you die. Did you notice how he wrote about it? When John talks about life, he talks about it like a present reality. He doesn't talk about it in the future tense. Look at what he says, verse 11. Actually, verse 12, I think is clearer. Whoever has the son will have life. No. No. Whoever has the son has life today. He doesn't say you will. He says it's available today. And so here's the thing. If eternal life is not something that comes later, if eternal life is not simply quantitative, it must be different. And when you look at the way John develops his theology of life throughout his gospels and throughout his letters, something is very clear. Eternal life is not quantitative. Eternal life is qualitative. The life Jesus describes and the life that John describes when he talks about life is the very best life possible. The life each of us has dreamed of. The life each of us was created for. The life each of us longs for. And John makes it very clear. That type of life is only available in Jesus Christ. You cannot reach the pinnacles of life. You cannot get to the very pinnacles of the way you were created apart from Jesus Christ. You have to trust in Jesus. You have to follow Jesus. You have to have the Son in order to have life. And if you're still wondering, well, what does this life entail? What does it mean? I told you, we're at the end of John's letter. He's already talked about it a ton, And so I encourage you, go home and reread it. But let me show you something. Just flip to chapter one. Just flip to chapter one and we gain two insights on what this life is like. Chapter one, it tells us this. It tells us that the Christian life, the life that each of us longs for, is a life of open transparency. We walk in the light as he is in the light. We don't have to hide things. Being a Christian means you just be you. You don't have to put a false front. You don't have to be fake. I know this goes very contrary to the way Christians are portrayed in the media and, frankly, the way we carry ourselves. But no, John makes it very clear. What is life all about? It's about being honest, being real, being normal, being open before God. And here's the beauty of it. It's not just, well, there's quirky John and he's a weirdo. No, it promises us this, if we bring our junk, if we bring our sins, if we confess our stuff before God, verse nine, God is faithful and just to not only forgive our sins, not only forgive, but he promises to get in the mess and clean them up. And this teaches us two things. Two things, we have an open life, a transparent life before God, and God promises to work in our lives. That means this life that Jesus offers us is a life of freedom and a life of hope. Freedom because we don't have to have shame. You don't have to have guilt. Freedom because you don't need to hide your stuff anymore and carry that baggage with you. You can lay it at the feet of Christ. You have an advocate, as John says in chapter 2, verse 2. You have an advocate who fights on your behalf, who carries your weight with you. You don't have to do it alone. That's amazing. But also, we have a life of hope. Hope. Because a hope that tells us tomorrow is going to be better than today because God has promised to act. Hope that all this weeping, all this brokenness, all this pain of life will soon meet its end because God promised to act. God promised to step in and do something about it. Brothers and sisters, some of you in this room have experienced and glimpsed this life. You've experienced and glimpsed this freedom, this hope, and you've experienced so much more of the life that Jesus offers us. And I say to you, those of you who are in this room who've experienced the grace of God, who've experienced the freedom, who've experienced the good news of Jesus Christ, your job, according to the scriptures, is to witness to what God has done in your life. Your job is to bear witness your job is to tell people about how god has brought hope how god has brought freedom how god has brought joy and grace and let's go back to hope into your life that's your job and yes i am hitting on the e-word evangelism here very much this is usually the most uncomfortable phrase we talk about in the church we're more comfortable talking about tithing than evangelism right? Evangelism is uncomfortable for us because often when we talk evangelism, we feel like we got to have the answers. When we talk about evangelism, we feel like we need to be able to defend God. We need to know everything about the scriptures. We need to know everything there is. No! The Bible tells us, 1 John chapter 3 tells us, all we have to do is be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. All we have to do is just say, why do you have hope today? i have hope because this is how i've seen god work in my life this is how i've experienced the grace of god in my life that's it you don't have to defend that you don't have to explain yourself sure if you can explain yourself that's helpful but don't have that be the the thing that holds you back jesus never gave a mandate and said i want you to be my disciples but first make sure you go to Bible college. In fact, get a PhD, write a dissertation on what it means to follow me, what it means to understand me, what it means to be a Christian, and then go out and share. You know who's the best evangelist in the world? New Christians. New Christians. People that have truly, freshly experienced the grace of God in their life. They don't have a fear about telling people. They just go out and do it. And so, guys, I say this to us. I am lumping myself in this category. I have experienced the grace of God. I have experienced the freedom and the hope that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have. And I know so many of you have because I've had conversations with you. Share the hope that you have. Just bear witness to it. Tell people about it. And here's why. Here's why. There are people desperate for a glimpse of of hope desperate I had a conversation with somebody this week and life was just kind of crushing in life was really difficult all I did all I I shared very poorly but I shared a glimpse of hope a glimpse of hope and they lit up some people are just so surrounded by darkness that the slightest glimpse of light is so attractive, so encouraging, so necessary in their life. And we have that hope. We have that light. We know Jesus. All we need to do is just talk about it. When you see a person discouraged, share it. But now I wanna talk to those of you in the room who are more in the discouraged camp. Those of you who are coming to church regularly and feeling like, You're doing everything you're supposed to be doing. Those of you who are coming to church and feeling like you're a better person than you've ever been before, and yet you're still wondering, where are these biblical promises? God talks about this life? What life? Where is that? I just want to point out, that's a fair question. And one, I'm so glad that you are here. And church, if you're thinking, are there people here? Yeah, they are. But more than that, there's a ton of them out there. But if you're in here and you're wondering, where is that life today? I have two things I want to share with you. The first is this. There is a difference between having life and living life. Make sense? There is a difference between having life and living life. And where that difference comes is this. John tells us, again, verse 12. Anyone, whoever has the Son, has life. If you believe, if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and what I mean by that is you simply say, yeah, I can't do this life on my own. I I need to follow you. I I believe you died for me. I believe you are good. I want to follow you. You do that, and you simply hand your heart and your life over to Jesus. John says, in that moment, you have life. In the quantitative sense, you have eternal life. Heaven, yeah, all that stuff, done. Period, in discussion. You have life. It's an amazing thing, and I encourage you with this because you're gonna get discouraged at times because did you also notice I said you're gonna only have glimpses of that life? Some of you only have glimpses of that. This side of heaven, we never really enter into the fullness of life, but we can enter into life. And so just because we have life doesn't mean we live life. Truly living Truly living comes by following Jesus. John says this again. I'm going to jump back. Chapter 2. Remember, this is the end of his letter. He's already said all of these things. He's just summarizing. Chapter 2, the end of verse 5. This is how we know we are in him. This is how we know we are living. This is how you experience the true abundant life that God offers you today. Verse six, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. What it means to live today is we stop following our ways and we start following his ways. We stop doing things that we think we need to do and we start saying, what do you got for me today, God? We apply scripture to our life. Or let me put it even more simple than this. When you have a decision to make, you have one of two decisions minimum that you can go down, right? You can go one of two ways. You can be the way you want to respond or you can be the way that... God wants you to respond. The way you want to respond, if you're honest with yourself, is usually selfish, self-focused, at a minimum, self-gratifying. Right? We do things because it feels good for us. The way Jesus would do things is how? He would always seek to love God and love others, often at the expense of himself. So you have options. Well, let's go a few things, only because... I know there's gonna be the person in this room that's planning on doing this, so I'm just giving you fair warning. Here's some practical advice. I know there's someone from this room who's leaving to go to Costco after this, (laughs) okay? Costco's like purgatory at times, especially Sunday after church. (laughs) Love Costco, but hear me on this, hear me on this, okay? You're going to Costco, church is good, you're feeling good, and then you're in there and you're surrounded by a mob of people, You know you've been there and your cart and you're just there for like four things. And of course they're all over the store and you gotta go. But you're going and you're hopeful that the snacks are good and you're going and you're weaving and then you get there and there's always this one person who decides to put their cart in the middle of the road, right, it's enough for three people but when their cart's in the middle and jerk sideways and then they wander to the side and their kids are blocking the other way, you're pulling your hair out and you're like, come on, dude. So you're frustrated there. Then you start going down the aisles. The snacks are terrible. They're all health food, right? (laughs) Biggest disappointment ever. All you want to do is get to your churro outside for a dollar, and you're wandering through Costco. You're weaving, and then you make your way to the sea of cashiers who, for whatever reason, have a mob in front of them. You get there longing for your churro, and you see a glimpse of hope. One of the lines is slightly shorter than the others. So in the midst of your frustration, you put it away and you start heading for that line, feeling very good about yourself because your churro is just seconds away. And then what happens? Somebody always cuts in front of you. That guy who just so happened to buy 5,000 watermelons that day and wants each of them individually weighed is I and you going for your spot and they're in a full-on sprint to cut you off and right in front. And then they always do this. They look back at you and smirk. You can respond one of two ways. Are you going to drop kick the watermelon guy? Yell at him in public, smash his watermelons on the floor as you all want to, don't think I'm alone in this. (laughs) Or are you gonna do more of the Jesus thing? Are you gonna say, Lord, I'm gonna bite my tongue right now. I'm gonna pray for this dude because he needs some serious salvation. No, (laughs) you pray, Lord, Lord, help me to realize this guy's in probably just as much of a hurry as I do. Help me to grow my love for him and his watermelons and may he be blessed today. You have one of two options there. But now let's go and let's just do this a little more practically. Let's say tomorrow you go into work and you find out your coworker took credit for something you did and your boss is now praising your coworker, what are you gonna do? Or let's say this, someone blames you for something you did not do, what are you gonna do? Or here you go, even more extreme, you come home tomorrow from work Exhausted. It was a long day. It was Monday. And you come home, and for whatever reason, the trash can's been kicked over. The kids' toys are everywhere because it's the first day of summer. You walk in the house, your kids are screaming, tearing down the ceiling, which is impressive. And your spouse is sitting there munching on the munchies you just bought at Costco today. And they're not doing anything. And you're like, What is wrong with you? What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? What John tells us is this. If we want to experience the life that Jesus offers us, it's in moments like that where we decide, are we going to live like Jesus? Or are we going to live like ourse- ourselves? That's what John lays out for us. Are we going to live like Jesus or are we going to live like ourselves? And so, sure, in some respects, it's easy to see where living like Jesus is good, right? You don't make a scene in Costco. The watermelons are still fine and, you know, you're not arrested by the end of the day. There's benefits to that. You also grow in your love for other people, sure. We see benefits in following Jesus most of the time. But sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's very hard and we don't see the benefits. In fact, Look at how living like Jesus lived or worked out for Jesus. He was killed. He was crucified. What we are promised is this, in this life, is this. When we follow God, we may not get everything that we desire. Life is not what we always intend it to be or what it looks like. The Bible never promises that. But what the Bible promises us is this is when life goes to hell when life is just a mess when things are going against you the same God who raised God who the same God who defeated death the same God who turned you and I from dust to life that same God promises that he can turn our messes into something good you may not see that good in your lifetime you may not There's a lot of martyrs who prove this to us. But God promises that he is in control and that he will make all things work out for the good of those who love him. But second is this. While you may not get what you want in life, God promises you will absolutely get what you need and more than you could have ever dreamed of. This morning, brothers and sisters, this is John's message to us. God truly died so that you might truly live. So live. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are truly overwhelmed by your goodness, overwhelmed by your ability to take broken rubble and rebuild it into something beautiful, a tapestry that honors you, Lord, there are people in this room right now who are just longing for the life that you offer them, longing for the goodness of your son, longing to know you and the life that you offer us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts this morning. Lord, that you would draw us into a deeper, more intimate relationship with you and that you would give us the boldness to follow you, the boldness to to go where you go. At the same time, Lord, we also confess that you are far greater than our math works out to be. You do not necessarily make sense in our head, but we trust that you are the God-man and we give you praise for that. We are so overwhelmed by your goodness that you would step into our world, that you would become God-enfleshed in the person of Jesus and that you would love us and care for us and go before us. It doesn't make sense but we are grateful. And so, Lord, as we turn for our offerings, as we turn to sing praises to you, Lord, may we sing out of an abundance of joy for who you are and what you have done in our lives. Lord, may this time be a time that puts a gigantic smile on your face. May you be honored in our worship and in our offerings today. In Jesus' name, amen.